the word for hearer was used in the first century of an auditor. Someone who would audit a course, so to speak, or some great teacher. And in the Roman culture of James' day, there were many people who would attend a lecture not to become a disciple of the one giving the lecture, but just to be an auditor. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are continuing our study in the book of James. Today, we continue our message in James chapter 1 in a sermon entitled, How to Hear God's Word. Let's join Pastor Carl as he explains the proper hearing of the Word of God often includes conviction. I get hateful letters. And by the way, if you send me one and you don't sign it, that's the first thing I look for. I just throw it in the basket. I don't even read it. But I get hateful letters and emails and things at my website by people, not from y'all. Most of y'all would never do that to me. But from people who I'm not their pastor. And they have total freedom, they feel, to crucify me. But what they're really angry at is not me. When they postulate their argument for anger, I think what you're arguing about is what God has said. Listen, the word of God pricks, it cuts, it convicts. And sometimes we want to guard ourselves. So why is it important that we guard ourselves from anger and not from the truth of God's word. He gives us the answer. Look at verse 20. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. The living translation paraphrases it. Human anger does not produce the righteousness God desires. Now, anger can be very subtle. And some of you are too spiritual to say, well, I don't really ever get angry with God's word. When all the while you're arguing in your mind with some of the things you're hearing, you say, that's just Brogy's opinion, and you haven't really examined it contextually and carefully studied to see, is that what God is saying? And so James doesn't want us to get angry with the word. He wants us to respond to it. And so he's laying the foundation here on how to hear the word of God. Because before you can construct a superstructure that's worth anything, you don't build it on the foundation of a chicken coop. You need a strong foundation. According to two of America's leading pollsters, George Bonner and the Gallup Group, They say today there is very little difference between the moral and spiritual standards of believers versus those who do not confess Christ. And I suppose much of that is because the seeds are being planted for the great apostasy, the great falling away, the apostasy of all apostasies that the Antichrist will bring. And so there's a lot of people in our churches who really aren't saved The biggest wake-up call in all of human history will come when people stand before the Lord who claim to know him, who had all the externals, who jumped through all the hoops, and he will say, I never knew you. But then there are those who are like the church at Ephesus who have left their first love. And remember, the church at the end of the age will be characterized by lukewarmness. That's why our impact is lessening and lessening, because our light is becoming duller and duller, and our saltiness is becoming unsavory. 
or we are neither hot nor cold like the church at Laodicea. But if God's work, word is in your life, you'll be different. But you see, people don't want to hear God's word anymore. They want a Joel Osteen kind of Christianity, a, a cruise ship kind of Christianity, I call it. The church is not to be a cruise ship. We're to be a battleship. We are to be changed and not like the world. And the reason we are having so little impact on the world is because we're so much like the world. And sometimes pastors say, well, I just want to be relevant. And I tell them, if you want to be relevant, then preach the word of God, because that is what is true. So James is an incredibly practical man. And he knows that we might deem ourselves to be religious or spiritual because of the amount of knowledge that we've stored up, or maybe even because at times we feel convicted. But he's going to tell us before this chapter is finished, and he's going to expand it in the chapters to come, that if I am really religious, if I am really spiritual, number one, I'll have control over my tongue. Number two, I will have a servant's heart of compassion. And number three, I will become cleaner and cleaner in a world that is getting dirtier and dirtier. Before we're out of the first chapter, he's going to give us three evidences, genuine proofs of a changed life. Now, that's the introduction. Beyond the introduction, let's move now to James's exhortation, his exhortation. I hope you're listening carefully. James's exhortation, verses 21 and 22. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness... And all that remains of wickedness and humility receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. It's very easy to be deceived. And sometimes as Christians, we become self-deceived or deluded. We think that just because we've heard a sermon preached and taught that we've really heard. And that's why Jesus repeatedly says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. It's entirely possible for the Bible to go through your physical ears and not really to touch your life. And so the apostle James here in his exhortation gives us three simple principles on how to really hear a sermon. Three words. Let me give them to you. They all begin with the letter R. The first word is the word remove. Remove all known sin. Remove all known sin. Now watch carefully. Before James gives his positive command, he gives us a negative command. He pictures the human heart like a garden. And he tells us before the word of God can really be heard, then the hindering sins in the heart must be dealt with. You must receive the word implanted. We have to remove the weeds, as we're going to see in a moment, to receive the word implanted. There has to be a weeding out before there can be a seeding in. In our first home, the gentleman across the street was an elderly man. And I said, John, I, I just wish I could get my front garden to look like yours. He said, I, I've just got just so many weeds I'm fighting all the time. And you know, I had a few flowers. And he said, well, one, you got to do a thorough weeding. And then you do a superseding. He said, I've got so many flowers in my front garden, there's no room for any weeds. Well, listen, there has to be a removal. There has to be a weeding out so that there can be a seeding in. Look at verse 21. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness. And interestingly, the word here for filthiness is literally a medical term that means wax in the ear. 
Now, don't forget, God wants us to be quick to hear. And if there is filth or wax, spiritual wax in the ear, then you won't really be able to hear. Do you know why sometimes God never really speaks to you? You have a quiet time, you come to church, and you're unchanged? It's because your spiritual ears are plugged. And the Greek term, wax, is used metaphorically in a number of different spots in the New Testament to describe moral uncleanness or impurity. And I find it interesting that he is reminding us we need to put away these acts of wax, these acts of sin. We need to make sure the heart is clean. And that's why... Very often when we begin our sermon, yes, we still do a pastoral prayer. Someone said that's outdated and outmolded, in your opinion. Mm. We have a pastoral prayer each week. And for many of us, if we haven't already settled it, that's a good time to make sure our heart is clean and clear as we open the Scripture. But he adds here in verse 21, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. The word wickedness, unlike the first word filthiness, that speaks of moral uncleanness on the outside, this word is repeatedly used to deal with a moral corruption on the inside, not just with outward actions, but inward attitudes. James is saying that spiritual maturity can only take place if there's a putting away of certain externals and there is a repentance of certain internals. And that's the point of genuine confession. When we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. Not a salvation verse, as most of you know. That's a verse written to people who are already saved. It's not a promise for those who are lost to get saved. If that were true... Christ never would have had to have died. He could have just said confess. It's written to the beloved that they might have fellowship with John and his fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. And so whenever you confess and forsake our, your sin, you're cleaning out the spiritual wax in your ears and then you will be able to really, truly hear. You say, well, it's just a little sin. There are no little sins in God's economy. Every sin, however big or small you may deem it to be, can break fellowship with the living God and stifle your spiritual growth. Do you remember what King David said in Psalm 24? Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? Of course, the hill of the Lord in his day was the Temple Mount. If you've been to Jerusalem, you see the Temple Mount. That's where the temple was built. Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? For him, the tabernacle stood up there. And who may stand in his holy place? And what was his answer? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and who has not sworn deceitfully. I hope you're listening today because I really want you, and more importantly, God wants you to know and to understand that a filthy heart will hinder your growth. And I'm telling you, there's nothing in the culture that will contribute to your spiritual growth in this day. There's more filth and wickedness like we've never seen in the history of our nation. Television programs, movies that people download, internet sites that they linger at, music with ungodly messages. And you think, well, you know, just a little filth in it. No big deal. It didn't affect me. The devil's already won. 
There must be no moral compromise. And when there is, there's dullness of hearing. Forty years ago, really 45 years ago, when I was a new Christian, 46 years, I guess, we used to sing a little chorus, fill my cup, Lord, I lift it up, Lord. Some of you may remember it. But we were singing it all wrong. We should have said, cleanse my cup, Lord. I messed it up, Lord. The cup needs to be cleansed on the outside and on the inside in order to hear God's word. So the first word is received. The second word, I mean, the first word you've got is removed. The second word is receive. Receive the word implanted. Receive the word implanted. Look now at verse 21. Further, therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness in humility, receive the word implanted. Now, the word receive is a Greek word that means to welcome or to embrace. It's a word that's used outside of the New Testament of someone that you would welcome and embrace into your home. And here he says, in humility, receive the word implanted. Now, we need to ask an important question. How do you receive something that's already implanted within you? When a pastor preaches, he's not to preach his own thoughts and opinions, but the scripture. And when he preaches the scripture, he's implanting God's word into your heart. The planting of the seed takes place, but the word of God is living and active and sharper. And so you are to welcome it. You are to water it. You are to respond to it and tend to it and pay attention to it. And so to do that, he says there must be an attitude of humility and humility receive the word implanted. Years ago, my ability to hear a sermon was revolutionized. And that when I went to a church, and I don't get to do it very often, where I get to go to a church and we'd be able to sit together as a family, and it was always a blessing when we could, but my ability to hear a sermon was revolutionized, and that I would try to hear the sermon like I was the only person in the auditorium. See, so often people hear sermons and they'll come, I wish so-and-so were here today. You know, they're kind of vicarious sermon listeners, What does God say to you? What does he want to say to you? Forget someone else. Now, true, sometimes I've been in churches and they they read a text and then they never refer back to it. And so I'll open the scripture and I'll examine a passage for myself. If he's going to talk about nothing, I'm going to at least read something. But if the pastor is reading and teaching the word of God, I don't care who he is. I want to hear what he has to say. I may have just preached the sermon a week before. But God, what do you want to say to me? Suppose a rich relative dies and you know that you're in the will. And you're invited to hear a reading of the will. What are you going to be listening for? You're going to be listening for your name. And that's how you need to listen to God's word. Like it has your name on it. Solomon said this, if you seek her, the word as silver and search for her, the word of God as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. We read it in the pastoral prayer this morning from King David's words in Psalm 19. He says, the scriptures, they are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the dripping of the honeycombs. Listen, I know as preachers, we're not always, quote unquote, as interesting as we should be. 
but it doesn't matter. Listen, if the will is being read, you don't care who's reading it. You don't care what their personality is like. You don't care what they're dressed like. You don't care what their voice inflections are. You just want to hear what's read. And when God's word is to be is read, that's how we are to pay attention. We are to welcome it in humility. But sadly, some will come hearing a sermon and say, well, he preached that five years ago. I remember that sermon. Well, maybe there's someone new who needs to hear it. And I never preached the same identical sermon twice, I can promise you. I go through it all over again. Or, you know, I wonder if he can teach me something new today. And there's this spirit of arrogance almost. I dare you to bless me, pastor. I dare you to teach me something new. I already know that. You know why some of us are really not growing? It's because we do not receive the word in humility. We're not teachable. We're not trainable. And so while we may be growing old, we're not growing up in Christ. We're not being changed and conformed to his image. You don't automatically grow. You grow in conjunction by the Spirit of God using the Word of God. And it all depends on what kind of heart it falls on. Jesus taught that principle in the parable of the sower, that the Word, the seed, can fall on different kinds of hearts. And that's what James is teaching here, not in reference to the lost, but to those who are saved. So therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the Word implanted, which is able to save your souls. Now, he's speaking here of being saved. Now, the word saved, I think most of you know, is a very big word in the New Testament. There are three dimensions to the word saved, and the context must determine its meaning. He has just spoken of justification, how we were begat or made alive through the Word of God. The Spirit of God used the Word of God to bring about a second birth. So there is one aspect of salvation where you're saved from the penalty of sin. We call that justification. There's a future aspect of salvation when Jesus comes back in the twinkling of an eye. That's faster than you can blink. We shall all be changed. Our bodies will be transformed. That's called glorification. But between those two points, there is this process of sanctification where I'm not saved from the penalty of sin or from the presence of sin, but the power of sin. And again, the Spirit of God uses the Word of God just as He does in justification to accomplish this in the process of sanctification. And that's what he has in mind here, which is able to save your souls. It is a present participle in the Greek New Testament. He's speaking here of an ongoing aspect. You might, might want to write out in the margin 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. Now, Peter has just said in chapter 1, the same truth that James said in James 1.18, that you were begetten or made alive by the word of truth. Peter says you were not born again of perishable seed, but imperishable seed. But then Peter, like James, moves from justification to sanctification. And so 1 Peter 2.1 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And by the way, if you're studying the Bible, you just don't read over a verse like that. You stop and say, well, what's the difference between malice and deceit and hypocrisy? And what's the difference between envy and slander? And those are all four different terms reflected accurately on English. And so if nothing else, just pull out an English dictionary. 
That's a sermon in itself. But the point is there's some things that have to be put away. There must be a weeding out before there can be a seeding in. Look at verse 2, 1 Peter 2.2. 2. Like newborn babes long for the pure milk of the word. Now some think, well, this is milky truths Peter's talking about. No, he's not talking about milky truths. He's not talking about the simple truths that you give a baby Christian. In the context, he's speaking about the purity of God's word, the unadulterated truth of God's word. Like a baby is hungry for milk, you need to be hungry for God's word. And if you've lost your hunger, you don't spend time with God, you don't read the word of God, you don't long to hear it preached, it's because there's something in the heart that's plugging it. Like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow. Here's sanctification. By it you may grow in respect to your salvation. So we have to receive the word in a clean and humble heart. There must be a holy humility before the Lord, a readiness and a willingness to hear the truth. Otherwise, it's like water falling on a rock instead of water falling on soft soil. God wants to do something from the inside out. Now, there's a third word. He gave us the word first before the sermon, so to speak. We remove certain things. He tells us what to do during the sermon. Now he moves in that we receive the word. Now he removes to what we're to do after the sermon. We are to respond. We are to respond to the word in obedience. Now look at verse 22. But prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. Now when James talks about being a doer of the word, he uses the word poetis. You can hear our word poetry. It comes from Greek into Latin, directly into English as poetry, or of a poet. He's talking here about creatively serving the Lord with all your heart in the same way that a poet would put his heart into a poem as he writes it. He's not talking about obeying the word with a bad attitude, doing the bare minimum while just do barely what I need to do. But he's talking about giving God your best. He is not just saying, just do it. He's saying, do it with all your heart. That's the great commandment. That's the Shema. He's talking about people here who are not just hearers. And interesting, the word for hearer was used in the first century of an auditor. Someone who would audit a course, so to speak, or some great teacher. And in the Roman culture of James' day, there were many people who would attend a lecture not to become a disciple of the one giving the lecture, but just to be an auditor. Before I went to seminary, while I was still a campus pastor at Duke University, I took my very first course in Greek in 1981. And it was there in Duke Divinity School. They let campus pastors do it there for free. And I said, why not? And so I audited New Testament Greek first year. I was the most relaxed guy in the class. Everybody else was sweating bullets. Why? Because they had constant quizzes and tests and midterms and finals and papers, but I had none. But you see, the problem with auditors is they never graduate. And many of God's people just audit God's word with no real intention to obey it and to apply it. And you see it in many respects. There are people who come even to churches like this who have no intention of ever joining a church. 
They don't want to join a church. They want to date a church. <laughs> they don't want to join a church because they don't want the responsibilities and the commitment that comes with membership. There are some people who maybe have even come to know Christ, but they don't want to follow through with baptism. Now, let me just say, in the context of this passage, there are many Christians who audit sermons, but with no real intention of obeying it. How do I know? Because if you ask them, a guy did his doctoral dissertation on this very subject, and he went to a number of leading evangelical churches, and he interviewed people two hours after the sermon, and the percentage of the people who understood what the sermon was about was just alarming. And some of us, when this sermon is over, the notes are in the trash. We don't give it another thought because we're just auditing. We have no intention of letting this change our life. And again, not everyone who grows old grows up. And there are people who come Sunday after Sunday and they even mark up their Bibles, but there's no real life change. And so they are deluded. They are thinking they are spiritually mature, but they're really not. And so look at this phrase, prove yourselves doers of the word. By the way, that's a present tense, and it comes out in different translations differently. But he's basically saying, continue to be doers of the word. Keep on obeying the message. If you want to be able to practice your faith like a practicing doctor or a practicing nurse, you can't simply audit the course. You've got to get your hands dirty. You have to get involved and obey what God says. Otherwise, we delude ourselves. And we are the losers because we miss what God really has for us. A.W. Tozer wrote in his little short book, The Root of Righteousness, these words. Listen. He said, there is an evil under the sun. It is the glaring disparity between theology and practice among professing Christians. So wide is the gulf that separates theory from practice that an intelligent observer of people who heard the Sunday morning sermon and later watched the Sunday afternoon conduct of those who have heard it would conclude that he had been examining two distinct and contrary religions. It appears that too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right but are not willing to endure the inconveniences of being right. And that's not what God wants for us. So he says, prove yourselves doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. So having given an introduction, then an exhortation, he now moves to an illustration, James's illustration. And it's found here in verses 23 and 24. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. So James is saying, if we're only auditors towards God's word and not doers, we're like a man who looks at himself in the mirror and he immediately forgot what he is like. And James's illustration is very important because he wants us to look in the mirror of God's word in a particular way. Humbly receiving the word of God can be difficult but it is often the place where growth begins. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 004. Tomorrow, Pastor Carl will finish his message entitled, How to Hear God's Word. Join us then as we search the scriptures.